Good morning, New Life East. How are we doing? Good. Par for the course. No one is paying attention to me as I stand up here. That's usually how it goes to start. Um, good morning to all of you. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life East, and we are so glad that you've joined us, especially if you're a guest. We'd love to say hi and give you a gift. Hi. And we would love to, uh, we'd love to give you a gift in an area called Connect Central just out after this service, so we hope to see you there. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Okay. Colin's doing the best, or he's just the loudest about doing the best. Sounds about right. Um, We are right in the middle of a series of talks on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you grew up in church, you know that the Sermon on the Mount is the section that we have in the book of Matthew, where Jesus is sort of teaching through what it looks like for the kingdom of God to become present to humanity, but what that also then, what is humanity's response to the kingdom of God showing up? And so we get in these few short chapters of the book of Matthew, a really clear picture of what it is that Jesus thinks and believes and what he is hoping to sort of pass on to us. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 21. Um, And uh, let me give you a little like peel behind the curtain on preaching here for a second. Um, There's a real fun thing, and I say that sarcastically, that happens as you prepare to preach. And it's that oftentimes God is more interested in talking to me first before he is interested in talking to you. And that very much happened with this passage that I have to preach on today. Um, If you know me well, um, if you're familiar with like the Enneagram at all, I'll just give you a little hint. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. So any eights on the Enneagram in this room? A couple? Yep. Some of my favorite people are eights on the Enneagram. Um, Eights on the Enneagram are like driven. They're very clear-minded. They're very articulate. They articulate the truth very well, at least what we believe is true. Um, We have never been accused of withholding an opinion. Um, If you're familiar with like Myers-Briggs or any personality tests, Myers-Briggs, I'm like an ENTJ, which I think the sort of category for that is commander. So super direct, uh, little Napoleon syndrome going on, could stand on the bow of a boat. I've never been on the bow of a boat, but I could stand on it and act like I know where I'm going. With all of those things, what you should know about me is that what is very much true is that if there is one emotion I feel easier than any other emotion, it is not love, it is not anything sweet, it's anger. Andrew and I joke quite frequently, if someone ever asked me, Rory, what do you think about that? Andrew's kind of like, well, probably anger of some sort. And this is where we're going to pick up today. Jesus has decided that in the Sermon on the Mount, it is worth him addressing not just anger, but murder. But what I want to propose to you today, we're going to talk a little bit about those two things. But what Jesus actually does in this moment is something that is fascinating. Something that I believe the crowd, as they heard it, would have been so shaken by. They would have been shocked by it. It's paradigm shifting. It's paradoxical in some ways what he presents about murder and about anger. And he has some things to say about it. But what he actually has to say is something that is life-altering about the kingdom of God. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 5, let's pray. And then we'll hop in. God, I continue to be thankful for this body of people who gather here at Grand Peak Academy on Sundays. Um, God, I'm thankful for the spaces that we all come from, the spaces that we step into this place with. Whether we've had weeks full of joy and excitement and miracles and goodness and just an overflowing abundance of life. I'm thankful that you meet us here. 
and that you reinforce those things. Or if we've come into this space with loss and tragedy and pain and frustration, even anger, that what you do is you meet us here as well. And you don't meet us here less than the other people. You meet us here just the same. So God, what we ask today is that as we open up these scriptures, as we read the words of your son, is that you would open our eyes to see things that we have not seen before. That you would open up our ears to hear the scriptures in a fresh way and that you would open up our minds to be transformed by them. That you would then move through our bodies, through our hands, through our feet, through our mouths, through our hearts, through our souls, and you would transform us as we leave this place today. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. We all pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, you can see the heading over it is murder. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, everyone say raka. It's the uh, Jesus equivalent of idiot is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Jesus starts talking to his crowd, telling a story that they are quite familiar with. He says, you've heard it said in the stories of old that you should not murder. And the story he's referencing is the story of Moses and the exodus of God's people out of Egypt. If you don't know it, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were being worked to the bone. God hears their cries for freedom, and he uses a man named Moses to help lead them into freedom, but they quickly find themselves wandering in the wilderness. And the way that God continues to intervene in them is in their lives and showing up for them is he gives them a set of commandments, the Ten Commandments, this framework to sort of work with. You know some of them, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. And one of them that comes up multiple times in the Old Testament is you shall not murder. And the interesting thing about you shall not murder is that it quite literally means you shall not murder. God's not really like pulling any punches with it. He's painting a really clear line that murder is just not a good move. You taking the life of someone else, just not a great decision for you or for them. Worse for them, but not great for you either. He's pretty clear cut. You shall not murder. The Ten Commandments get thrown around a couple of times in the Old Testament. Both times it's the exact same. No elaboration on it. No need to offer any commentary on it. He just says, you shall not murder. So New Life East, when I say we should not murder, we would all say, amen. We're on the same page. We all agree. Head nods. Good. Great. We're going to be done. Close up shop. I think you all get it. He just says, you shall not murder. It's a straightforward command. But Jesus, as we know, as Pastor Andrew said last week, what Jesus is interested in is the righteousness that is truly connected with the kingdom of heaven, which is not just righteousness that's built around if you do or do not do something, but Jesus wants to get all the way to our motives and our agendas and our heart and the way that we think before we ever commit an action at all. So what does Jesus do? Well, he suggests that anyone who is even harboring anger in their heart might as well have committed murder. And what that should do for all of us is give us a little bit of pause. Just by a show of hands, how many uh, people in here have ever felt angry? Okay. Some of you are just lying or you're just not listening. Either way, I'm totally fine. <laughs> Listen, we've all felt it. So Jesus says, if you've felt anger in your heart, you might as well have committed 
murder. This should create two things for us in our heart. One, we should recognize that what Jesus is doing as he sort of gives a commentary on this long-standing commandment is that he's doing something different with it. He's not changing it. He's not abolishing it. As Jesus said, he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's giving a clearer picture of what's going on. I think the way to think about it is Jesus is taking this commandment and he is trying to stretch it to its furthest extent. What does it really mean to not murder? Well, he would say it means to not even have murderous or angry thoughts about another human in your heart. So we should recognize that one. But two, we should also be filled with a valid sense of confusion. Is Jesus really suggesting that for you to feel anger about something or someone is the equivalent of committing murder? None of us, if we were a judge in a courtroom and someone walked in and said, I have been angry at my friend, would we go, you get the death penalty? If someone walked in and committed murder, maybe our brains go to a different spot. But Jesus is somehow creating this correlation to it. And why should that be confusing for most of us? Well, if you've read your Bible or paid any attention in church, you know that Jesus himself got angry at things. Jesus wasn't always sort of walking around prancing through daisies being a sweet little Messiah. Jesus often got angry. You know this if you've read the scriptures. So if Jesus got angry, we have to ask the question of like, why in the world is Jesus saying that if you feel anger even in your heart, you've approached the same kind of judgment as someone who is murdered? Here's the theological truth that I think Jesus is trying to bring out in this moment. And it's this. It's that anger is acceptable when it is aimed at the same thing that God aims his anger at. Which, let's flip it, anger is unacceptable if it's aimed at something that God is not angry about. Anger is acceptable if it's aimed at the same things God is angry at, but if it's aimed at something he's not angry at, well, we have probably stepped out of line. So a worthwhile question to maybe ask, knowing what we know about Jesus and and thinking about what he's maybe trying to get across, what made Jesus mad? Maybe that's a question you've never asked yourself. What made Jesus mad? Think for a second across the Gospels, across the stories you've listened to, the stories you've heard about Jesus. What made Jesus mad? I think there's a few things that are easy. One, injustice made Jesus mad. You think about the moment where Jesus walks into the temple. This is the story that anyone who has an anger issue uses to defend their anger issue. Jesus walks into the temple. He sees that there are money changers. There are people selling doves. There are They're oppressing the poor. They're making it harder for people to come into worship. How are they doing that exactly? Well, people would make trips from all around to come and worship at the temple. It was the place where they had access to God. His spirit was available to them. So they would show up. In order to be there to make a sacrifice, you had to bring an animal. Well, if you were poor and you didn't have your own animals, what you could do is buy a dove that was available for you. But so often people would show up. They didn't have a dove. So these Salesmen are standing there with doves that are triple, quadruple price. They're pricing out the poor. So what is now happening in this moment? Poor people are not able to actually offer a sacrifice to God in a meaningful way. They're not able to stay ritually clean as the Jewish process was available to them. They're not able to do it. Jesus sees this and is furious. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You guys are robbing people left and right. So he flips tables in one account of it. He makes a whip out of cords, goes full Indiana Jones on people. He's angry. Because he sees that there's injustice happening in a space that it's not supposed to. Jesus gets mad when injustice shows up. What are the other things that Jesus gets angry at? One of the things that I notice he gets angry at frequently is legalism. Legalism being this like such a a rigid religious keeping of rules and laws. Jesus, he has this moment in Matthew chapter 12 where him and his disciples are walking through a field. It's the Sabbath. And his disciples start picking grain off of these plants to eat it because... Well, they're just hungry. 
And all of a sudden, I love the way Matthew writes this because it's as if the Pharisees are like hiding and they just sort of pop up out of nowhere. And they show up and they go, you know, it's the Sabbath. You can't pick that food and you can't eat it. And Jesus just kind of goes, well, they're hungry. Should they just not eat anything? The Pharisees sort of fade away. And all of a sudden, a man with a withered hand, a man who has a disability in his hand shows up. The Pharisees, again, just sort of pop up out of nowhere. And they say, are you going to heal this guy on the Sabbath? If you do, you'd be breaking the law. And Jesus looks at him. And you can hear it in the tone of the way he tells this metaphor, this story. He says, if your pet donkey fell into a hole today, would you just stare at it? Would you be like, it's the Sabbath, dude, I'm sorry. We'll come back tomorrow. The implication is, no, you wouldn't just stare at it. You would, you would do something. You would get down in the dirt. You would pull this animal up. So what Jesus would do for an animal, he would certainly do for a man. Jesus heals this man and goes on. And the Pharisees are completely outraged. Why are they outraged? Well, for them, what Jesus had done is, has broken a law. But what Jesus has actually done in that moment is revealed a true value in the kingdom, which is that while lo the law was great and Jesus is not coming to abolish it, he's gonna show you what it really looks like to live it out. So sure, rest on the Sabbath. That could be a different message entirely. Rest on the Sabbath. But my goodness, if there's someone in need of healing, would you step out and heal them? So it's injustice that Jesus gets angry at. It's legalism that he gets angry at. But the other thing, and we talked about this a little bit last week, it's hypocrisy. And what's interesting is when Jesus gets mad about hypocrisy, it's never aimed at what we would call the sinners of his day. It's almost always aimed at who? The Pharisees, the priests, the pastors, the religious people. We read this verse last week in Matthew 23. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. This line is so interesting. He says, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, but you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. To summarize it all up in one sentence, what made Jesus mad was any time that there was a group of people who were being blocked from the kingdom of God. Jesus expressed anger, righteous anger, when any group of humanity was being blocked from the kingdom when the poor were being kept out, when people who were sick and left in the dirt were being pushed to the side. Jesus showed raw, true emotion about it. When the temple, a place of prayer, had been turned into a money-changing, destructive space for humans, Jesus was angry. Which doesn't clear up why Jesus is still saying that anger is somehow equivalent to murder. Can I tell you something about Jesus' anger? Jesus got angry. Jesus was never irritable. Jesus was never like, Jesus was never the guy driving down I-25 saying things about people's mothers that they had never met before. Jesus was never the guy who was annoyed with his coworkers, so he gossiped about them behind their back. Jesus expressed righteous anger. But it's not the kind of anger you and I tend to portray. Jesus got angry, but he never did it because he lacked control. God doesn't lack control. God wasn't like, I can't believe it snowed again this weekend. But some of y'all threw a fit. Some of you, your spouse was like, you need to go take time to yourself. Jesus expressed anger, but he didn't express it the way in which you and I show it. This uncontrolled, irritable, 
man, there are lots of words I wish I could say from stage to describe it, but I can't. You get the point. This anger that's irrational, it's just thrown around, but it begins to ruin our lives. It ruins relationships. I can think, uh, this is not a story that I'm proud of, so if you're a guest in the room today, just know that I have grown much since then. But I remember, how many of you remember when you first got married or when you first graduated college or you first moved out on your own, that first apartment that you moved into? How many of you can remember it? Yeah, a few of you. There are two types of apartments that you move into, like for your first place. It's either the places that you can easily contract Empatigo or it's the other places that are nice. My wife and I were privileged enough to when our first apartment that we moved into, it was a really nice apartment. Like it was brand new. Her company paid for us to move there. It was, it was incredible. I mean, we had like state-of-the-art gym. We had like a club upstairs of the, like, ha- the place there was like p- pool and arcade games and TVs and a dog park. It was incredible. It was so incredible. In fact, every night someone would come by your apartment door and take your trash out for you. Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. Some of you live in a house with a bunch of family members and they don't do that for you. <laughs> So all we would have to do is we would take our bag, we would tie it up, and we would stick it outside. I remember this one night. It was like one of those trash bags that you're smelling it just all through the house, like it's permeating every room. And you're like, maybe we should just like set this on fire somewhere. Like this shouldn't exist even in a dump anymore. It's that bad. And I, I tie it up. I sit it outside the door, shut the door. I go and watch TV. I don't think a thing about it. I hear the garbage man like outside messing around, picking stuff up as we always do. 9.30, 10 o'clock comes by. I go out to bring the trash can in, and I open the door. And to my surprise, the trash is all over in front of my door. In my mind, I think this bag must have ripped. But my mind immediately, knowing who I am, I am full of rage. Like the kind of rage you could win a war with. And I stare at it, and I go... Why would he do this? Is he an idiot? Did he not even think to knock? He could have just knocked. Could I get away with murder if I see him again? The thoughts begin to fly. And then the one that shows up when most of us get angry. I'll show him. I go get a new bag. I begin to pick up all of this trash and put it in a new bag. Now, a normal, healthy human being would have just bagged it up, left it right there. I was so full of anger. My wife is just sitting on the couch watching all of this transpire. Because I'm not talking. I'm a quiet, angry person. I I grab the bag and I say, I'll be right back. I march down two flights of stairs, across the street, to the apartment complex office building. I open the bag. And I dump the trash out. Now, hold on, hold on. I'm not proud of this moment. I am aware that it is sort of funny, but I'm not proud of it. I dump the bag out. Thank you for sharing. I feel like we're at a, we're like an AA meeting right now. I'm Rory. Yeah, I'm addicted to anger. Um, Dump it out. And I walk away. Y'all, I'm so proud as I'm stomping off. Because my anger has been fulfilled. I have taken it out in the space that for whatever reason my brain has told me was the right space to do it. I walk into our house. I'm smiling. I shut the door. My wife, without missing a beat, goes, so when are you going to go pick it back up? (laughs) 
It's like, it's good. It's good. Listen, for most of us, that is how anger gets expressed. You don't dump your trash in front of people's offices. But it's irrational. It's erratic. It makes no sense. That is not the way Jesus expressed anger. His anger was always in control. Can Can I say this? Jesus' anger was never a byproduct of anxiety and depression that was not dealt with. Some of us in this room, the reason you felt like a low hum of anger in your life is not because you're an angry person. You've stepped into a really unhealthy mental space, and you just haven't done anything about it. Listen, you want to know something that I found out to be true? When women get depressed, it tends to be what you assume is like the stereotypical depressive response, right? There's a lot of emotions, big emotions, tears, whatever. When men get depressed, you know what, like the expression of that depression is most of the time? It's anger. So guys, some of you have expressed anger over the last few years. Maybe your relationships are falling apart because of anger. And it's not actually because you're an angry person. It's because you have a lot going on. Can I tell you the truth, though? According to Jesus, it's not enough to just be like, I'm angry. We have to do something to deal with it. Jesus was never angry because of these sort of trivial things that we experience. It was because he experienced other things. And to get to the heart of what Jesus is calling us to do, I think we have to see that there's a bigger picture going on. Jesus has moved from murder to anger. Two things that all of us would sort of say not great when they consume your lives. But Jesus does something really fascinating. He uses the word therefore, and there's a joke, long-standing joke among preachers that if the Bible uses the word therefore, you ought to ask the question, what is it? Therefore. Yes, some of you have gone to church before. <laughs> Jesus uses the word therefore. He says this. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Now hold there for a second. Jesus is saying, if you are participating in religious activities, such as going to church, singing songs, listening to a sermon, taking communion, giving of your offering, if you are doing those things and you remember that someone might have a reason to be furious at you, here's what you ought to do. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. Now get what you, man, I don't know if we grasp what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is looking at this group of people who understand the religious laws of their day. They understand the very premise that in the Jewish worldview, where is God located? The temple. Jesus says, if you find yourself going there and getting ready to leave an offering, what you ought to do is leave. If you know that someone has a reason to be angry with you or if you are harboring anger in your heart yourself, you ought to get up and go. And you know what I've realized about this verse? I've heard this read in church so many times and I've never once seen someone stand up and go, you're right, and leave. Jesus says you should get up and you should go and do what? He says, first, go and be reconciled. Go back for me. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. What is Jesus doing here in this moment? What Jesus was constantly doing with his audience was challenging what their perceived sense of righteousness was. He was challenging what they believed made them good with God. And what he says, what he's trying to get across is that righteousness for them was almost always solely based on fulfilling the law. Could you hit all the religious check marks that you could? 
But Jesus, it seems, is not all that interested on if you can hit all the religious check marks or not. What Jesus seems to be interested in is your heart, as we said last week, being formed into something new, which is a heart that is considering things beyond just their religious reactions to God. To say it maybe in a simpler way is to say it this way. Jesus is not just satisfied with vertical morality. Jesus is not satisfied if you can look and say, my relationship with God is good. And that's all you can say. Think about what he says in Matthew chapter 22 again. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. You know this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, well, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the rules, all the things that have been said in the scriptures hang on these two commandments. What we don't get when Jesus said that is what Jesus is looking at is a room of people and saying, it's not enough to just say you love God with all that you have. Are you also loving the people around you with all that you have? Is Jesus like really serious? That's a big thing to say. He then says in Mark chapter 10, a young man comes to him. We know this story is the rich young ruler. A young man comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say to him? He says, well, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. In other words, you know all the rules. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. He says, one thing you lack Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. What's Jesus actually saying? I get that you know how to do all the religious, all the vertical morality. I get that you know how to do it. My question is, are you willing to give up everything you have for your poor neighbors? And what the story ends with? Well, the man goes away sad because he has so much. He's not sure if he can do it. Or just think, verse you've heard over and over in John chapter 13. A new command. Jesus says this to his disciples. I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must now love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What does Jesus do? He says the way you're going to be known is not if you're a religious rule follower. It's not going to be known if you have the vertical morality thing right. What's going to be known about you, how we're going to know if you are a disciple of Jesus or not, is how you love the people who are next to you, how you are treating the people who are to your left and to your right. So when Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at, your, at the altar and you realize that someone has anger against you because you've messed up or you have it, he's looking at these people and saying, next time, just sit the gift down and go do the right thing. Deal with the relationships that are falling apart. He says, it's not just enough for you to look at it and say, well, God and I are good. He says, it's so much more than that. Because Jesus realizes that while anger doesn't always lead to murder, anger that's undealt with will almost always lead to two things. And that's either bitterness or resentment. Some of you have sat in here and you're like, I don't really struggle with anger. You probably don't, but I guarantee you struggle with one of those two things. You can have stories that play through your mind where you feel bitterness towards people who have hurt you, who've done you wrong. Resentment towards people who have made your life difficult. 
You can play that, that reel over and over again. So what is Jesus getting at here? A bigger principle of the kingdom than just being angry or just committing murder? He's getting at this. Jesus is saying is that it is impossible to have a righteous relationship with God if you have angry relationships with other people. It's impossible. Not it's possible with some help. It's impossible. What that means is you can't come into church on Sundays. None of us can. And say the phrase, God and I have never been closer, but my wife and I are at each other's throats. It means you can't walk into a space and say, God and I are on the same page, but my relationships are all falling apart. You can't say, man, I read my Bible every day. I hear the voice of God so clearly, but harbor anger and bitterness against whole groups of people in your heart. You can't be like, I hear God clearly, but those Republicans are the worst. I hear God clearly, but I really hate those Democrats. I hear God clearly, but people who look differently than me, people who think differently than me, you harbor anger in your heart against them. You can't do it. You can't look at God and say, God, I'm so glad that you and I are close, but my kids don't want to speak to me anymore. What Jesus does is lay out a profound truth about the kingdom of God, and it is that he is equally interested in the way you relate horizontally as you do vertically. With that in mind, would you stand as we get ready to step back into worship and take communion together? Jesus was never all that interested in you walking around being right with God but being wrong with everyone else. So what does he say? He says, if you find yourself in that space where even as you hear these words of Jesus today, you can think of faces and names of people that you are not in right relationship with. Maybe for some of you, it's the spouse that you walked in with. You haven't told anyone, you haven't talked about it with anybody, but when you guys go home, when you get in the car, you are at each other's throats. Bitterness and resentment reign supreme. Jesus says the only right thing to do is don't even come to the table until you've dealt with it. Jesus says what you might need to do is step out. And this is an invitation as a pastor here. Step out. Send the text. Make the phone call. Write the email that says, I have been harboring bitterness and resentment and anger in my heart. And what Jesus says to do is reconcile with that person. You know what the word reconcile means. It's when you look at a budget and everything hits zero. No one is owed anything. No one is waiting to be paid anything. Everything is at zero. Another way to think about it, the way that Jesus says, is to simply trade out that anger, that bitterness, that resentment for peace. So some of you, some of us, it's not just you. It's all of us have been holding on to things for 20 years that you have not sent the text, made the call. Maybe you can't say the words, I forgive you. Maybe they can't say the words, I forgive you. At the very least, you can go, this is not mine to hold anymore. At the very least, you can look at them and say, I'm sorry. My anger got the best of me. And that bitterness and resentment has haunted us. What I love about Jesus though, is he doesn't say, walk away from the altar and never come back. He says, walk away, deal with it, and then please come back to the table that has been prepared for you. Because the table does not discriminate against our failures. 
The table does not, there's not a check at the table of the Lord that says, are you angry? Let's step out for a second. It's come all who are invited. This is what Jesus does on the night that he's betrayed. He takes bread and he breaks it. He breaks it in front of the people who would deny him, who would betray him, who would, I'm sure, in their most honest moments, harbor anger against this guy who they thought would rescue them from oppression and pain and all of a sudden is dead on a cross. He said, this bread, this is a picture of my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? He then takes the cup of wine. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a promise. I can't leave you. I won't bail on you. Don't bail on the people you love. Don't bail on the people that you live with. Don't bail on the people that there have been animosity and conflict between. The kingdom of God has a higher ethic. It's not just to not be angry. It's to not be angry, to not use religiosity to cover up the anger in the places of fractured relationships, but to solve them. Because without solved relationships, this doesn't work either. So friends, we're gonna invite you to the table. I wanna invite our communion servers to come forward. Every section, you'll step out to your right. There will be someone down front with a gluten-free cracker. They'll hand it to you. You can then take that cracker, dip it into the cup. You can then take that communion back to your seat, take it with your friends, your spouse, your kids, whoever it is that you're with, and take it on your own time. And then we'll step back into worship. Let me pray over us this morning. God, uh, your words on anger are challenging and they're confusing. but they have weight. That what you are calling all of us who have said yes to Jesus and his way of life is to not be people who are bitter and resentful, to not be people who are harboring anger in our hearts because those thoughts will eventually turn into actions and those actions derail relationships. And you are somehow the kind of God who is, you're not narcissistic. You want our praise, but you also want us to be right with the people that we stand shoulder to shoulder with. You are somehow a selfless God that it is not all about you. It is about forming us to be like you. So God, would you do that in this moment? As we come forward, as we eat and as we drink, would you remind us of what Jesus's death has done for us, which has reconciled us back to you so that we can have right, reconciled relationships with one another. God, would you find your way into this cup and into this bread? Give us a clear vision of the kingdom again. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Come forward to receive communion.